0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're
1: mainly discussing land rights and economic
0: empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration. I just and want energy. To talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett, it's a fresh view coming on. on ABC Radio. I think sovereignty is power. It's power of self determination being self-sufficient within our own selves, the power to decide what we do with community, culture and country, I guess. Mm. For me, it's, it's about being unapologetically black. I think for me, sovereignty is freedom and speaking my truth day in, day out or performing my truth day in, day out. The
2: Art of Sovereignty. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. When the notion of Indigenous sovereignty is put to the broader Australian public, it often sparks a visceral reaction. But why is that? For First Nations Australians, sovereignty comes in many forms, as does its expression. It manifests within our song, dance and story, and can also be communicated through a fearless sense of personal identity. So, with that in mind, what are the barriers that exist within colonial structures which limit the assertion of Indigenous sovereignty? How has the Black Lives Matter movement influenced the public discourse around a national truth-telling process? And what role does culture play in the empowerment of First Nations people?' These ideas were explored in greater detail during a recent panel discussion held at the Sydney Opera House titled The Art of Sovereignty. Joining the conversation were Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia Lorena Alum, and dancer, choreographer and actor Luke Curry richardson Both have thought deeply about the concept of sovereignty and have used their talents to deepen our understanding of Indigenous culture and history. Let's listen in now and we begin with Lorena Allen as she details how her background has helped shape her worldview.
1: My family, my mob come from the Kamilaroi and Uwollari nations of far northwest New South Wales. We're related, we're cousins, same mob, small mob but big impact. Um, and our country is in the Narran Lakes area, a place called Darrawa. So our culture, our people, our history comes from that place. But we also identify very strongly with a, a mission on that that place at Angledil Reserve, which was where my grandmother was born, and many of her generation, uh, the generation before them, were probably among the last initiated and cultural and language-speaking members of our family. So we have that double connection, not just to the country, but to that, that reserve, the sort of post-contact history as well. And I also have a very strong connection to Ewan country on the south coast because I grew up down there, and, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful country.
2: And obviously that gives us a sense of your cultural identity. You've gone into journalism, history, social justice projects. Where did that sense of social justice that those interests come from in terms of your background and your upbringing? Um, Learning about family history
1: was the, the most inspiring thing to understand what our ancestors went through to get us here. And then once you understand that, you realise that you also have a responsibility to, to take on that journey and, and do your bit, you know, make a contribution. So it's my family history and, and the sacrifices they made, the, the lives that they led, the way that they fought back, even in little daily ways, that was what was the inspiration.
2: And what about you, Luke? You bring together an amazing array of nations in your history.
0: Yeah, um, my family, my bloodline runs through many lands and clans in in this country, and I think it's important to acknowledge them all. On my father's side, he's a um, a Kuku Yelanji, a Jabokai, and also a Miriam man from the Torres Strait, far north Queensland. Uh, My mother's side, she's a Mananjali and Bachelor woman, so from southeast Queensland, like um, Bo Desert and um, Fraser Island up there. Yeah, but I've always kind of grown up away from country trying to, to learn more and constantly trying to, I guess, yearn for more. has always been away from country and community. So it's, a, it's been a, not an easy, easy ride, an easy journey to navigate, but it's brought me here today to talk about it, so.
2: And what drew you
0: to performance? my first memory that just popped into my head just then was actually, um, we were all dancing at a, a cousin's house. And it was the first time we kind of did like a, a hip-hop circle. And I had no idea that kind of my cousins in Canberra introduced me to dance and int- introduced me to my musical taste now, which is all the R&B and stuff like that. And uh, from there, a lot of those, those cousins, sorry, got into the traditional Torres Strait Island dancing in Canberra, of all places. Torres Strait, Canberra, similar weathers and climate. <laughs> um, Nadok in Canberra, cold, oh, my goodness, in, in the grass skirts and stuff. But... Um, I was always the one that was left out. You know, all the all the cousins, brother, both brothers and sisters, would get up and, and and they would go and dance, and I would be the one that would left out. And the aunties and would go, "Go on, you, your turn, your turn, your turn." And sure enough, I got into it, and that's where the passion came from. A uh, backyard in Canberra, learning island dance with a broomstick in my back, and connecting to culture via dance, song, and and cultural practices by making those instruments and stuff like that.
2: I love that story. Of course, we so closely connect to country when we're on it, but it's a lovely reminder about how we connect to it when we're away from country as well. absolutely. And now that we've got a better sense of, of how your worldview was shaped, I wonder if we could start maybe exploring the concept of sovereignty and maybe start with you, Lorena. What does sovereignty mean to you? I've been thinking a lot about this because it's,
1: it's not an easy answer to give. Uh, it means a lot of things. And in the absence of a kind of national recognition of our sovereignty in, in a voice to government, in a voice to parliament, I should say, it is a very individual expression. So, and it has to come from a knowledge of your roots, where you come from. And so sovereignty, to me, is is a kind of finding a way to freely express who you are and fearlessly do that because whenever we talk about sovereignty, there's a backlash. People, mainstream Australia, is very uncomfortable about this term. So for me, it's a very strong individual expression of identity and it can, come, it can be expressed in lots of different ways, whether it's through writing or song or storytelling, film, those, you know, any, any way that you can express yourself freely, that's, that to me is a kind of sovereignty.
2: Mm. What about you, Luke? What do you think of when you think of that term?
0: I think sovereignty is power. It's power of self-determination, being self-sufficient within our own selves, the power to decide what we do with community, culture and country, I guess, mm. for us to have that power and be able to come to the table and not be the minority at the table but have that equal sovereign power at that, and that voice that we have and be unapologetic about it. I think for me, sovereignty is freedom.
2: It's really interesting because obviously I think for particularly non-Indigenous people when they hear the term they think politics and they're thinking big picture. But I think there's an element, a thread through what you've both said that's really about the fact that sovereignty is also something very personal. And it reminds me of something that our elders often say, which is sovereignty is not something that's given. It's something that you exercise. As an individual, you exercise it. So on a personal level, Luke, just digging into that, how do you see your personal artistic practice shaping your sense of being sovereign?
0: Oh, that's the that's good one. For me, it's it's about being unapologetically black and speaking my truth day in, day out, or performing my truth day in, day out. You know, you say dancing, theatre, all, all of those. It's the showing my skin, the skin that was supposed to be wiped out, you know, all those years ago, to be out on stage, to be on these social media platforms, to be uh, on screen and on, on stages like the Opera House. For me, that's how I try to be that positive reinforcement out there, that sovereign body to so white Australia can see that. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do day in, day out with my artwork or my, my being, sorry.
2: And what about you, Lorena? Thinking both in your creative practice but probably in your broader work as well. I think it's about trying... And this is a big,
1: a big idea. It's about trying to flip the thinking of non-Indigenous people So that sovereignty to them, they understand that it's what was here before them. So it's not, it it is a very, like it's an individual expression that we all have. But it's also helping non-Indigenous people understand that this is a sovereign place. That there was a life here, there there were many cultures here before the tall ships arrived. And that that has to be we have to get back to that understanding and have to have that understanding embedded in our institutions and in in everything we do. I mean, until we recognise that, we're not really a a mature nation.
2: Luke, you're a performing artist and a storyteller. From your perspective, what is the role of truth-telling and why do we need it now?
0: I think we need it now more than ever. Uh, I'm going to jump straight to that because... In a time where everything is deemed fake news, where um, you can find thousands of things that are... Articles that are against the Loch Ness Monster, you can find a thousand more that are supporting that Loch Ness Monster is real. That truth-telling in itself is important because that way I think our future is going to be very muddled up and, and a dangerous place to live, you know, especially right now during all this presidential election stuff. But a whole different story. I think as an artist telling our truth... Story, uh, our truth it's important because I don't think our truth, Indigenous truth is being told or has been told properly through the right streams, whether that's education, social media, uh, the news, uh, public publications like that. They're not being told from our side of the story or our, our, our truth is being told by our people. So I think it's more important now than ever because our kids need it, our future needs it to be sovereign, to be our self-determination and self-powered.
2: I mentioned in my introduction to you that you do do mentoring. You clearly do think about younger people coming through. And one thing that's very clear in speaking with you and watching your work is that you have a very strong sense of yourself. And I was wondering what your views are on how important that truth-telling is for younger Aboriginal people and some of the issues you see them struggling with in that context.
0: Yeah, I don't even think for just younger people, to be honest. I think this idea of walking in two worlds is a very tricky place to navigate. For me personally, like I said at the start, I've always grown up away from country. So I've had to kind of yearn to go to that, but also try to navigate this contemporary society. And I see kids doing that, and I think that's what kids struggle with. They've got to struggle with this identity issue. And for me, I think a lot of that negative stereotypes or these, these false stereotypes that I'm going to say that are portrayed by our people heavily influence the ideas of our young generation. So if I think, if I can be out there telling our truth to hopefully shine light on, on, on our power, our being as Indigenous people out there, whether it's the Instagrams or the, the, whatever those social media platforms are, I think that's where we help our next generation, you know. Our, our youth suicide is way too, way too high. And is that due to these false stereotypes out there, these false falsehoods that are being portrayed on our people? And I think it is for personally. But I think that's what the importance is of our truth-telling through our art and to try and connect with those younger generations to helpfully inspire them to see a brighter day.
2: Lorena, you're a journalist and artist and you've worked a lot on projects that are about uncovering history, often history that most Australians might find uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, what's the role of truth-telling and why do we need it now? So I
1: just want to echo everything that Luke just said about truth. We're sort of living in a, in a world where truth is, is something you can, um, it's flexible somehow. Whereas, I mean, as a journalist, I believe that telling objective truths and giving people facts is the most important thing we can do because it's only with, armed with facts that we can make sensible decisions for ourselves, for our families, for our communities and societies. And so much of social media is designed to upend all of that reliance on fact. And so we see, you know, I think, as Luke said, the, the craziness of the presidential election. And, I mean, the QAnon conspiracy, these kind of crazy ideas that are, that are being allowed, but the Flat Earth Society is back, you know. So the, the idea that all these these things that we have objectively proved to be incorrect are now back with us is, is a problem for the planet, And which is why I think what is valuable about our cultures is you have to know where you come from and you have to know your worth in that society. That is what will get you through this kind of crazy lack of truth that we're navigating these days to be able to stand in the knowledge that you, where you come from, that you know who you are, you know your family, you know your mob, you know your culture, that's what keeps you safe. It's like a protection blanket against the craziness of it. But it's concerning. I think why we need, as Aboriginal and Islander people, need truth now is that I, I kind of feel like it's, people are ready to hear more of that history that has been so so hidden and so suppressed for so long. So my, my concern, though, is about truth-telling processes have to come with justice. When I worked on the Bringing Them Home Inquiry, that was a really important process and, and people gave so much of themselves to that to that, and their hopes for it were very high. And so I don't want to see another process like that happen without some mm. reparations and justice for our Aboriginal and Islander people to come from the other side of it. So truth-telling has to, has to happen, but it has to come with the promise of change. We, we can't keep telling the same traumatic stories and, and, um, and seeing things repeat themselves. The Black Lives Matter movement in Australia is, has coalesced around deaths in custody, which, as, as we all know, it's 30 years ago, the Royal Commission recommendations were handed down. They're just as relevant as, as they ever were. And so truth has to come with
2: structural change, I think. Uh, You mentioned the Bringing Them Home report. I'm thinking of the work you've done on the Deaths in Custody database, really collecting the stories of deaths in custody since the Royal Commission and the fabulous uh, work you've done collaboratively with historians around the massacre sites. And I was just wondering what your reflections are in terms of what it means to people to be able to tell those stories but what some of the reactions are to to that truth-telling. It's interesting. Uh, the people who are
1: willing to tell their stories, who want to participate, feel relieved. It's like finally I can acknowledge that this is in my history, that um, they want to tell their stories, they want to be heard. The challenge is telling their stories in a way that's respectful to them and their history. I mean, one of the great dangers of mainstream media is, the, is that it's a massive filter between people and, 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 and a, an audience. And so trying to, to find a way for people to tell their stories in the most unfiltered way so that it gets to the most people is, is really, that's the challenge of my job, to do that in a, in a way that's tra- a trauma-informed way and that's respectful and, and that's culturally respectful to them. I mean, with the massacre map story, we had, we had one story of, a, of a, um, a person in Queensland who was descended from both sides, if you like, of, of the massacre Place And that's not an uncommon history. But this person was very ready to talk about it. And it, and it made me think of all the challenges that, that they have in, in coming to t- Everything about their history is, it's not simple. It's really complex. It's a lot for a person to come to terms with, to come to peace with. So while there's a lot of interest and people are keen to tell their stories, the, the challenge is about creating a space where people can tell that story safely and that they have the support that they need once it's been told because once it's out there, there's a whole lot of new other issues that, that people,
2: you know, that trauma will bring up for them. So those are the challenges. I just want to pick up on one thing you've said okay. to get Luke's view on it. And it's this, you've both spoken about the challenges in the time we're living with around fake news and conspiracy theories okay. and the need for truth in that context. But at the same time... Uh, Lorena has observed that there's actually been a greater interest in learning about Indigenous culture and history. As a performer who's been performing for quite a long time, is that something you've noticed? Has there been a shift in terms of more people being more interested in Indigenous culture and knowledges? Is that something you've observed?
0: Absolutely. I I do have a a small following on on Instagram at the moment, and during the thickness of of all that Black Lives Matter, it was actually mentally draining... The amount of non-Indigenous people asking to be educated. And it was just that it was that balanced beam of, oh, this is really nice. Like, of course, under tragic circumstances that they've they've come they're coming to ask for help. A lot of people were were asking for help and asking to be educated on these things. A lot of people say it's not our job or my job to educate, and I think I think it actually is. If it's in my time where I have to educate the people that are asking for help, I'll do my best. It's, it's a sacrifice that we have, to, we have to make, and that's just my personal beliefs, but it's the sacrifice that we need to make to make the next generation not have to worry about that side of things. And we already know that the schooling system is not doing the best job of that. So, But definitely people are interested in it and just wanting to get me out there. They want to get me on platforms. They want me to get on panels and podcasts to talk about my my truth, not even about the history of it, just my lived experience. So um, I've definitely seen, I think, they've jumped on the diversity train that America is kind of like, kind of putting forward.
2: Well, I'm glad you're on this panel. <laughs> it does seem, too, that when we seek to push the debates that we want the broader Australian community to have, there are points of resistance. And I think one of the interesting things about the topic for the panel that we're doing now on the art of sovereignty is actually the use of the word sovereignty because it has been a word that a lot of non-Indigenous people have just recoiled from, almost have a visceral reaction to it. And I was wondering, Lorena, what your observations have been around that. I mean, you would have been through the same periods as I have and I'm thinking particularly of the, the Aboriginal provisional government, the 1990s sort of radical, as they were called, rights movement then where sovereignty was a big word and was uh, very much rejected with discomfort as part of the dialogue. What are your views on why that word had that reaction? Sovereignty requires
1: a recognition of wrongs done. It requires a transfer of land and it requires a transfer of power. And mainstream society is just not willing to countenance that. So every time you raise the, the subject of sovereignty and what it might mean on an individual and a societal level, people start to panic because they know that it means a transfer of power and authority. And so that's why... I mean, that's, that's the, main, the main thing. It's interesting you mentioned the Aboriginal Provisional Government. I was just remembering how... That, remember that you could get a passport. You got an APG passport. I
2: got one so of those a, passports. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that was a really strong statement to say, we are, sovereign. we are a nation of people and we don't need an Australian passport to travel the world because we, we come from this country and here's our, here's our proof. And I remember Michael Mansell... And a, a group of people went to meet with Gaddafi in Libya. And it was a scandal. You know, it was a total scandal. That, and, but I, it was such a great example. It is such a great example of a, an exercise of, of sovereignty. Say, so I'm, I'm a member of a sovereign nation. I'm going to meet with another, the leader of another nation because I can. I'm not, I'm not an Australian. Mm. And that really freaked people out.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because in some ways, it's exactly what the idea of the tent embassy was. We have our own embassy. I'm I'm interested in uh, this aspect of your work in relation to that, Luke. You know, you you do dance performance, which is a really great way to engage a broader audience with Indigenous culture. And there's almost a way in which it's seen as a soft way to bring people in, but you have some very strong messages and thoughts and politics and you've done a lot of work in the reparations space in particular. And I was wondering how you view that. Like, is there a part of what you do that is about the softer message or the engagement with culture? And how do you do that thing about getting people to enjoy the culture but also thinking about the hard issues?
0: Yeah, um, I think for me personally is that I need to play my role in the community. I find that a lot of non-Indigenous people, they label me as an activist, and I don't see myself as an activist. I'm merely just speaking my truth through art forms or performing. The softer way is equally as important as the harder way. And for me, it's just the only way I know. It's within a theatre. If the only way we're going to be able to educate non-Indigenous people is in the opera house or on stage or on screen or via social media, then that's the way that... I, my part, will have to play. It was never to kind of educate as well. What I do was never to educate. It was always to empower, empower people, empower black people to be strong in who they are. And then if non-Indigenous people learnt from that as well, then that was always second. But our people and what we do with my body and my art has to empower them first because they can't be second fiddle to non-Indigenous people anymore. So that's always like my process is how will my message affect my mob first? Will it empower them? Will it make them angry? And then it's is this gonna educate somehow, way, shape, or form as well to the rest of the rest of the nation or the world.
2: That's dancer, choreographer and actor Luke Curry Richardson, and you also heard from Indigenous Affairs editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen.
0: Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people on ABC Radio.
2: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt, and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app, and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight, we're featuring an in-depth discussion on the concept of Indigenous sovereignty, both as a political statement and as an art form. We'll continue the conversation shortly, but right now, some music from the late Dr. G. Unapingu. This next song is taken from his debut album, Gurumul, and is called We're a Pangu.
3: Yeah. Papá
2: That's the late Dr. G with his song "We're a Pangu." Let's return now to our conversation on indigenous sovereignty. In recent months, a greater number of non-Indigenous Australians have been seeking answers to the many social issues faced by our people. But through what medium is truth-telling most effective, and who is best placed to provide it? We'll pick up the conversation with Luke Curry-Richardson as he shares his thoughts on this question.
0: I think I need to say this on, on behalf of my peers is don't just go in asking to be educated straight off the bat to, via social media. It's not a DM conversation. Our history, our, our very rich history is not a DM conversation to have over social media platforms. There is endless amount of classes out there. There's endless amounts of resources out there for you to look up. For If you want to type it in a DM, you can type it into Google. You can type that into, you can type that anywhere to find that. We are tired. I took time away from it and doing talks like this because it was mentally draining. Like, there was days where I didn't get out of bed because it was very overwhelming. So I think my advice, first and foremost, to non-Indigenous people is do the research first and don't play, don't play ignorance. We all know where to look for information in this day and age. We're, we're in a time of information. So uh, do the research for yourself. And then if you want to buy me dinner and have lunch, then we can go and we can have a talk about that later as well. So.
2: <laughs> you might have a lot of people taking you up on that offer. Lorena, i mindful listening to you both talk and, and the strong sense of engagement you both have with cultural practice and culture and cultural values and that real continuation of of that that occurs in the way most of us as First Nations people choose to live and do our creative practice and, and have our professions at the same time we still see instances where that culture is under attack. And as I've been listening to you talk, I'm reminded of the really good reportage you've been doing recently on the Rio Tinto activities that saw an incredibly important and significant site destroyed. And I was wondering what your reflections were on that because in some ways, obviously it was a most horrendous thing with horrendous timing, but the consequences have in some ways been different to what they've been in the past. Can you share your reflections on on that situation in terms of how it's all played out? So I think the crucial thing is that
1: the um, Pusha Kuntikurama and Pinikura people put out a press release after Rio Tinto blew up the Jukang Gorge, and they did that knowing that there was a gag, a so-called gag clause, uh, and that there'd be consequences for them speaking out so, but they were they were brave enough to you know endanger that whole arrangement to to speak up because they had were devastated that they had lost this hugely significant uh, uh, important site, forty six thousand year old site. There was a human hair belt found there that showed a direct genetic link to the P K K P today. And that there was so much more to learn about that site, and, and, and yet it was destroyed by Rio perfectly legally. And, I mean, it's not as if this doesn't go on a lot in the Pilbara. It's really common, because, as I say, it's legal. So a lot of mining companies apply to destroy Aboriginal heritage. They, they apply to destroy it in order to expand a mine. And most of those, over 460 applications in the last uh, decade, none have been refused by the West Australian government. So it's a very common practice in the Pilbara. What made made Rio's atrocities different, I think, was that this time around, it wasn't just um, Aboriginal people objecting. We had shareholder groups here and overseas, really powerful groups who were responsible for billions of dollars of superannuation funds, for example, who said, we don't want to tolerate that anymore. We don't want to invest in a company that has such a poor um, attitude to the people it's supposed to put first. So I think what has made this different is that I think Rio Tinto had tried to to deal with it as they would always have done. They set out, you know, they got legal advice, expecting a backlash. They were quite cavalier in their evidence to the um, Senate inquiry. The chair of the Senate inquiry said they had, you know, clearly misled the inquiry with their evidence. It was clear that senior people in the company did know how important that gorge was. I mean, I, I could go on. So what's different about this story is not just that, that the traditional owners at the heart of it were brave enough to, to object and to speak up at great personal risk, but that shareholders around the world actually heard them and decided to do something. And, and I think that's a really... It's an interesting change that we're we're talking about big investment groups who really care about environmental and social and and cultural sort of risks to their investment. I mean, we're still talking about money, right, and that money talks, but but this is a a big change and a a little bit
2: of progress. It's also a reminder that, I mean, we've been focusing on sovereignty, expressions of sovereignty, personal acts of sovereignty, but there is also a range of... uh, Colonizing processes that still go on destruction of heritage, removal of children, dispossession from land, the incarceration rates are all parts of that ongoing colonial process so it's sort of a reminder that actually I think for both of you in the worlds that you're working in you're behaving in a way that is asserting sovereignty and and um, your own identity, but at the same time you're working in spaces that have been highly colonised. So I was wondering if you could talk about the aspects of how you work in those spaces that are actually about decolonising and the challenges around that. And, and maybe for you look in the performing arts area and the other spaces that you're working in, what are some of the challenges in terms of changing those attitudes?
0: That's a tough question for me because I, I go into these spaces really unapologetically. Dance for me was a tough one because the ballet stream and stuff like that was very like proper, you know, they're proper. And, you know, I went to a a university. It was very institutionalized. And the way I moved, I didn't feel like was accepted there. I didn't have the, the traditional the traditional, the white traditional ballet body, real thin kind of. I was a basketballer slash football player when I was younger. I was a bit broader, a bit thicker, couldn't touch my toes. Um, and the way I moved wasn't balletic in, by any means necessary. But at, out of 23 people, I'm the only one that got to join a company and then the next minute they was like, oh, we made him. It's was like, no, 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 you didn't. You didn't make me. But it's to try and, it's, it's this like I said, unapologetically trying to stay true to yourself, true to your cause and people, which is very hard if you are worrying about missing out on a place. For me, I wasn't worried if I was going to miss out on that place at that institution or when it comes to social media, I'm not worried about missing out on promotions or these likes or whatever it is. It's not about that. It's about being able to live truthfully who I am in any given moment, in any given space. If it's here, it's there. I was getting dressed up today going, I'm at the opera house, I should wear a jacket and a really nice. And I was like, actually, no, nah, I'm going to rock the Pumas, I'm going to rock this, this, this is a part of me, who I am yeah. in this space. You know, this is the true, honest black man, early 30s, not so young. But, yeah, this is who I am and this is how you're going to accept me and this is how I want to be seen on these platforms.
2: When you think of how much has been done over the past generations to erase any sense of pride in Aboriginal culture and heritage, it almost feels like you being comfortable with who you are as an Aboriginal man is an act of
0: defiance in itself. It is, but it's also off the back of my elders, the people that have paved the way for me. You know, my favourite image of my mum and dad is of them protesting in Cairns in their early 20s, a black and white uh, photo of them, and I got it it framed for Dad's birthday. And I'm I'm able to be who I am today for the fights that our elders and, and those from previous generations. have fought. And we can't say nothing has changed to this day and age because here I am being able to stand strong and proud because of those fights.
2: What about you, Lorena, and particularly working in the media, where there are enormous challenges in terms of how our stories are told, who they're told by, how we're portrayed, the language used around our mob. You must be exhausted fighting these battles over all these years, but I wonder if you could share with us what the challenges are in terms of decolonising that space, what sort of strategies you've used. It's a challenge because this is the, the, the
1: media, is such an important pillar of the colonial project right so trying to decolonize is like really going to the foundations of the way the nation views itself and talks about itself so it's it's not an easy thing to do i've never been alone in doing it i mean there's there's always been other mob there all doing their bit you know so it's a collective effort it always it always is without people you it, you you never you're never alone in that. You should never be alone. If you are, then maybe you're not where you should be, right? So I think there's a lot of people in the media now. There's a great new generation of journalists who are really proud of who they are, who are forging a new way of doing this job. I'm amazed by them, and I'm so pleased to see that they're doing it their way. But I think that we have to fight on a number of fronts in the media, that's about representation on our screens, but it's also about having people in senior decision-making positions behind the scenes, casting, directing, funding, talking to philanthropic organisations, training, succession planning, not just taking up space, but making sure that, that space is safe for the next one to come through, making sure that person is safe before you move on. All those, all those people as a collective so the media is, a, is an ongoing project. I think we're, start, we're chipping away at it. It's certainly a more welcoming place than it was when I started as a cadet a long time ago, 30 years ago, and that was hard. I mean, there, were, there was a lot of racism, a lot of really blatant racism. It's not to say it's not still there. People get very good at hiding. You know, there's they, people talking code, and we, we know what that means when we hear it. But it is a, it is an easier place to work, and it, it will get easier as more and more of us take up places in all those different levels. But also, we we all need to support indigenous media, independent indigenous media where it exists, because that is so important for our mob to be able to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And like you were just saying about how when you do when you perform you do it for your mob first and then if somebody else learns from that, that's great. We, we need to see the same thing about our media. We need to really support independent Indigenous media, make sure that they have the resources they need to thrive and because the, the other stuff, the institutional stuff, is an ongoing project. But this is our this is the heart
2: and soul of our, our media, I think. So listen to your Korea radio and watch your NITV. Luke, I was wondering if you're optimistic about the future and what would you like to see for Australia? Is there a vision of Australia that you're working towards or what are some of the things that would would signal to you that, you know, we've, we've come a long way?
0: To be honest with you, I'm always optimistic that the fight for us is going to be a good one. There are a lot of things during the Black Lives Matter was like, oh, you got 50,000 people at the protest. This you, you should give you some hope. And I was like, I don't put my hope in these passing trends that white, uh, non-Indigenous people can jump on and off. My hope is in the resilience that my people have shown for all these years. Am I optimistic about the future? You have to be. We have to be. We always have to hold on to hope because if we don't have hope, what else is, what else is there? What, what else am I working for? in that sense, you know. So I'm always hopeful that I'm chipping away and educating at one, 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 one person at a time, you know. What do I see in the future? I see that our law and their law can be hand in hand. Our, our cultural practices aren't something they bring out like fine cutlery for the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. I, I see people knowing the land that they live on, non-Indigenous people knowing the land that they live on and may, may, maybe even possibly a, a, a local uh, greeting or, or, or farewell but I also see that those that are living away from country have the right resources to know how to connect, whether it's uh, a dance group like Mugger, which is an absolute godsend to me, which is from my grandmother's country, or it's apps or, or, or TV shows. Or I saw the Māori do their um, language week last week, and one of the social media uh, personalities over in New Zealand, he did uh, a new phrase a day, which was, I don't know my language, but I was like, if I could learn something like that. I could be able to do that and reach these people. That's kind of the hope that I have for the future, just to be our culture just infiltrating every aspect of TV and uh, social media and publications and all, all, all of that. Yeah, just so it's easier for the kids.
2: It's a great vision to work towards. What about you, Lorena? Are you optimistic and what sort of things are in your vision for a better Australia? I'm, I'm optimistic about this generation, these young ones
1: coming through, who are so um, confident, so prepared for the for the challenges that they that they will have to face. I'm optimistic about our people's capacity to bounce back, to stay to stay brilliant. You know, I mean I was thinking about Vincent Namajira winning the Archibald Prize and Maine Wyatt winning the, the Packing Room Prize. There's two really good examples of people expressing their their sovereignty, and that the power of that you can't, you can't underestimate the power of that. That to me is, is is an expression of optimism. I was thinking about you know uh, the documentary about Kathy Freeman that went to air a few weeks ago on the ABC, where she said, "When I got out in front, I felt my ancestors with me. How could they beat me?" Because I had my ancestors with me and I still get goosebumps when I think about it. I mean, that, that just, to me, encapsulates the optimism that that we should feel about our mobs. I'm not so sure about the broader society, but I think that harnessing that energy, that the goodness of it is
2: is what will keep us strong, I think. It's hard to think of another moment like that Cathy Freeman moment where the whole of Australia felt like we were in the one place, on the one page. Yeah. And there because of a of the excellence of an Aboriginal woman i 'm mindful of the time, but i 'd just like to find to, to have one final question that picks up on something you 've both said in relation to your optimism and it speaks to the resilience of our people and you know I know one of the things that uh, we 're often told is really important by our elders is is um, the silences are more important than the words that idea of taking time and thinking which is really about well being and I think in listening to the work that both of you do and, you know, you being quite frank about some of the challenges and the emotional pressures and, and, um, expectations on you, I was just wondering if you could both share with us what you do to look after yourself. Where do you get your resilience from in terms of being able to do the work that you do and be so culturally strong,
0: Luke? I actually live by those words with Cathy. You know, I feel like my ancestors are, are, are with me. Before any kind of engagement, I'm always I say uh, three things, and it's family, culture, ancestors every time because I know if I'm doing it for those three reasons, I'm gonna be okay. This is my belief: is that my ancestors are gonna let me lead me astray. They fought a hard fight. They've they've got me to this stage right now. They they put up with a lot of things in in their in their life. That whatever faces me now, they're gonna have my back. They, they're gonna they're gonna continue to pave that way for me. So um. That's kind of what, how I I view my, I get my resilience from, sorry, yeah.
1: Lorena? Same, same, same. Whenever I'm about to do something that scares me or is challenging or, you know, I I think of them and I kind of, I talk to them in a way, you know what I mean? Like I I seek advice and I I think of them. It's hard to describe really what what I mean, but once you understand that they are with you, you really can do anything, right? And, um... I also, I spend a lot of time, like I I walk, that's my thing (laughs) to do, is to just, to walk off the day, to walk, to walk, to just clear the mind and to, just to listen to birds, to listen to the bush. I really
2: get, yeah, I really enjoy that. That's Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. You also heard from dancer, choreographer and actor Luke Curry richardson They were speaking at an event titled The Art of Sovereignty, held earlier this month at the Sydney Opera House. And a reminder that tonight's conversation was recorded as part of the Sydney Opera House's digital season, From Our House to Yours, which can be viewed on the Opera House website. To take us out this evening, we'll leave you with some more music Music, this time from Dan Sultan. Here he is alongside fellow Australian artist Meg Mack with a reimagining of his song Reaction. show for this week. Join us again next week when we profile you and woman Sonia Stewart following her landmark appointment with the Law Society of New South Wales. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.